0: Show me an investor who has never made a mistake and I'll show you a liar. There are a lot of people out there, especially on social media, who claim it's so easy to make money when investing. They claim that they can predict the future and that they know what stocks are going to the moon. Unlike these TikTok investors, we believe that honesty and transparency is the best policy. That's even if it can be a little bit embarrassing, which is why we're going to be sharing five of the biggest mistakes we made when we started investing on today's episode of the Stocks and Savings Podcast. Hi, we're Andrea and Jamie, two millennial investors and chartered accountants that are here to help you become more confident about the world of investing and finance. We want to give a disclaimer that we are not financial advisors. Nothing in this podcast should be treated as financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. When investing, your capital is at risk and the value of your investments may rise and fall would also like to thank our season sponsor, Trading 2 on 2, for helping us bring you this podcast. Trading 2 on 2 is an investing platform which aims to democratize investing, and it's also the platform that we have used since we started. But more on that later. We've dedicated the last four years of our lives to learning as much as possible about investing in the stock market, and we've been putting as much money as we can into our investments. However, looking back, it's now clear to us just how many things we got wrong when we started investing. Now, we're not going to be too hard on ourselves because it was early days, we were bound to make mistakes, and the last few years have been a real roller coaster for investors. Thankfully, the pain of losing thousands of pounds through our mistakes has taught us lessons that will last a lifetime. And we hope this episode of the podcast can teach you some of these lessons too, but without costing you thousands of pounds. So I guess we can't put it off for much longer. Let's talk about the five biggest mistakes we have made so far on our investing journey.
1: Okay, well, I guess I will start with the first mistake. And I think this probably was the first mistake, as in the mistake that came before all of the rest. Now, most of the mistakes that we're going to talk about today did end up costing us thousands of pounds. However, this first mistake didn't actually cost me anything. And that's purely through sheer luck. The first mistake that I made was that I didn't have an emergency fund before I started investing. Even worse, my investments were actually my only source of savings. Before I get into why I did this, I think a bit of background is needed. And maybe this is just me trying to uh, come up with an excuse. But hey, here goes. So I'd lived in London throughout university. And despite working multiple jobs during my studies, this took its toll on my personal finances.
0: Wait, what jobs did you work? I knew about the the one in accounts payables, was it?
1: Yeah, so actually the company that I was at work experience with when I was 15 years old, because we have to do that in school, uh, we get sent to a company for a couple of weeks.
0: That's so cool. We don't do that in Romania. We're all like learning, I don't know, theory, like, I don't know, quadratic equations and
1: whatnot. Well, mine was really random. Like I had some of my friends, they went to like Boots and I think like Brantano and some random places. But I ended up working at this small local business, um, just kind of like in admin. But I ended up working there as well, where I took a year out before university, uh, worked in accounts for a year, and then they kept me on throughout university. So for a lot of the time, I would go and work whenever there were breaks. But in my last year of university, in order to try and earn some more money, I actually worked whilst I was at university as well as like over the holidays.
0: So, what were the other jobs?
1: So, the other main job that I worked was with the sports department at my university. So, I was captain and president in my final year of the cricket team. But I basically ran an indoor cricket league that we had every week, which was a lot of fun and I enjoyed it. And it was only, I uh, know, a few hours a week, but they pay me for organizing it. So that was quite nice, a, a nice way to earn a little bit of extra money.
0: Oh, that's really cool. How much did they pay you?
1: I can't remember. It wasn't bad. Um, I enjoyed it. In fact, I feel like I've enjoyed most of my jobs.
0: Ah, oh, that's nice.
1: Especially the ones where I was just starting out. Yeah. Anyway, I guess that, that paints the picture. So, you know, I, I was at university. I did have a scholarship from the university as well, which helped me get by. I was working these two jobs. I'm sure I had a third, but I can't remember what it was.
0: Uh, and you also had your maintenance loan, right? That helped you get by.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I now have about 50, 60 grams worth of student debt. But anyway, that's another story. So
0: that's good, though, because it means that you'll probably never actually pay it off, right? Your student loan.
1: Unless I start to make a lot of money.
0: Well, yeah, but, you know, like on average.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Whereas I only have about 27 grand, which means that I think I'm a bit more likely to pay it off in 30 years.
1: So what you're saying is I'm really lucky.
0: Exactly. Well, there you go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show about finance where debt is good. Uh, Anyway, getting back to the painting the scene. So I I did work through uni, but living in London, it did does just take a toll on your finances. Uh, But I was fortunate enough to get a well-paid graduate job in finance at Vodafone after leaving university. Yay! However, my finances just became messier. For years, I was dipping in and out of my bank overdraft. I found it so difficult to save because as soon as anything went into my savings, it would just disappear the next month. And in truth, there wasn't really a magic cure for my finances. The only way that I managed to stabilize them was actually by moving in with you. Not, not you listening, you and Andrea that I'm talking to. I, I, I promise you're not going to go home and find me in your house.
0: <laughs> you're welcome.
1: So I can confirm that life is way more expensive when you are single. Soon after moving in together in early 2020, I started investing. Now, I'd only just got into a position where I had a bit of spare money each month. And this is where I made my mistake. I should have used at least some of that money to start building an emergency fund for myself. But I didn't. I'd always been interested in investing. I'd always wanted to invest. And quite frankly, I was too excited about investing as much as possible to even think about contributing to my emergency fund.
0: I don't know. I think the bubble that we were in in 2020 as well, we're all saying like, oh, you know, cash is trash. Like You have to invest as much as possible. And then at like a 10% annual return, you'll be a millionaire in, I don't know, 20 years and stuff like that. And that was probably influenced by the fact that the decade before was like one of the best ever decades for the stock market. And Interest rates were low, which meant that everyone just went into the stock market to try to earn higher returns, which meant that then the stock market went up in value a lot. And everybody just seemed to think that, you know, that's the new normal and things will be that way forever. Hence, cash was trash. But well, little did we know (laughs) that was soon to
1: be over. Exactly. And, you know, the only reason that not having an emergency fund didn't cost me any money, it was basically just dumb luck. You know, if I had an emergency expense come up, such as a high medical bill or an expensive car repair, I would have been in trouble. Most likely, I would have had to sell some of my investments in order to pay for it. And that is the last thing that any investor wants to do. You know, you want to be in control of when you sell your investments rather than being forced to do it. Now, I've come up with an example that shows exactly why. Imagine if you were investing back in 2008 before the great financial crisis decimated the stock market and left millions unemployed. Selling your investments in 2008 or 2009 would have been one of the worst ever times to sell since stocks had crashed and they've performed amazingly ever since. But picture this fairly realistic scenario where you lost your job in the great financial crisis. You could be in one of two positions. You might have had an emergency fund that covers three to six months of living expenses or you might not. If you did have an emergency fund, you've been able to get by without selling your investments and you would be reaping the rewards right now. However, if you did not have an emergency fund, then you probably would have had to sell your investments in order to get by. Not only did that mean selling investments after they had crashed by 40 or 50%, but it meant that you would have missed out on the incredible returns that the market has seen since 2008. That was then, and this is now, but there is one big lesson. We don't know what the future holds, and we don't know when we might find ourselves in a difficult financial situation. That is why you absolutely need an emergency fund, or at least the beginnings of one, before you start investing, because there is no telling what the future holds. Now, we all know, as Andre was just saying, that cash in general is a pretty terrible place to keep your money for the long term. Savings accounts rarely outpace inflation and investing has historically offered far greater returns. But can you quantify the return that having an emergency fund would have given you back in 2008 when the market crashed if it meant you didn't have to sell your investments? The financial benefit of having an emergency fund in that situation would have been huge. And also, let's not forget how much emotional strain might have been put on you if you didn't have an emergency fund. So really, this lesson is just another reminder that finance is deeper than simply saying something like, cash has historically returned less than inflation. Investing historically returns 7 to 10% per year in the long run. Therefore, put everything into stocks. As with everything in life, balance is required. And that's why today I do have an emergency fund, which has certainly come in handy.
0: Yeah, definitely. Just think about that time when, I don't know, our boiler broke.
1: Well, exactly. I think when you have a house as well, you need almost a separate emergency fund. I mean, I feel like combined, we probably have three or four different emergency funds for various things.
0: Yeah, I also also had my freedom fund. I mean, I have my freedom fund, which means that, yeah, I don't have to depend on any job or partner. I can get out of any situation that you know no longer feels right for me, and by the way, when we talk about the returns that investing has historically returned, we talk about the global stock market, um, so you know that might differ depending what kind of geography you invest in or what types of investments you have.
1: Oh sorry, I'm still hung up on the veiled threat to leave me. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Guys, if this season ends halfway through, you know why.
0: Yeah, it's like, you know what they say, never let your guard down, right? <laughs> Ever. Anyway, yes, luckily I did have an emergency fund before I started investing. However, the next mistake that I'm going to talk about is one that we're both guilty of, and that is not starting with index funds. To recap, an index fund is simply a basket of stocks that you can invest in, and it tracks the performance of a specific stock market benchmark. To put it into context, you know how inflation is measured by the change in the consumer price index, which is an attempt by the Office for National Statistics to measure the price of a typical basket of goods and services. There are similar things but for the stock market because it's easier to track one stock market number than having to monitor all of the stocks listed in a particular country, for example. One such stock market index is the S&P 500, which is a leading indicator for the US stock market or the FTSE 100 for the UK stock market. But it is also possible to invest in a global index fund. For example, my largest holding is the FTSE All World ETF, which is a basket of stocks that includes thousands of large and medium-sized companies from across the globe. The beauty of these is that they have had pretty attractive returns historically, and plenty of studies show that index funds have historically outperformed most actively managed funds, whose literal purpose is to deliver a greater performance than these indices. However, we didn't start with index funds when we began our investing journey. We had always been interested in business and finance, and we had a fair bit of time on our hands when we were locked indoors for months on end in 2020. So we started investing in individual stocks rather than index funds. Now, there's a number of differences between investing in individual stocks and investing in funds, but the shortest way to summarize it is this. Investing in individual stocks is riskier. When you invest in an index fund, you are investing in hundreds if not thousands of stocks. As a result, any big losers tend to average out with the big winners and the return you get is much more steady. But with individual stocks, it can be a roller coaster. And if you're just starting out on your investing journey, it can be extremely difficult to cope with that from an emotional point of view. Even nowadays we hate seeing our investments losing money, and that's after years of experience. It was a hundred times more difficult to cope with when we first started investing. Every time our individual stocks would go up, we'd want to sell in order to lock in that profit. And every time the stocks would fall, we would panic and either sell them or buy more.
1: Ah, those were the days.
0: We were young and foolish.
1: Now we're slightly older and foolish.
0: We hadn't developed a long term mindset yet, and our lack of knowledge about the individual stocks left us panicking. It turned us into traders who were just looking to make a quick profit, which isn't great because most traders lose money in the long run, whereas most long term investors make money in the long run.
1: Yeah, it's funny, I think not starting with index funds is a big regret that I still have to this day. Although it's ironic since I still don't hold any funds.
0: Yeah, that that surprises me. Well. I do think your explanation makes sense. Do you, do you want to explain it briefly as well?
1: Yeah, sure. So my rationale, I, I wish I started with index funds and I can definitely see the benefit and I definitely want to incorporate them into my investing strategy you know, at some point in my life. However, I started investing in high growth tech stocks that I thought were brilliant companies with a bright future ahead of them. And I did that in 2020, when they all started going up. And I did that in 2021, when their share prices had skyrocketed. And I did that in 2022, as their share prices started to fall. And I'm currently doing it still in 2023, because I think a lot of their share prices still look fairly attractive compared to the opportunity that they have ahead of them. And I feel like there is still a bit of negative sentiment around these types of companies, because they kind of went up into a bubble and then came back down. Now, the reason that I'm not investing in index funds yet is because I still like a lot of these companies at their current price. However, my plan is if they do recover a bit and if they do start to look a little bit more expensive than I'm comfortable with, then I will start to put more of my money into index funds rather than individual stocks because the share prices of individual stocks can fluctuate a lot more, which I think gives me more opportunity to buy them at an attractive price. However, when their prices are looking less attractive, it doesn't mean that I sell them, but maybe I will just put my money into index funds instead and, and keep it there for now because it's a lot more stable.
0: But do you think there's also the possibility that some of those companies will recover or even become a bit expensive from a valuation point of view, but some of them would be comparatively a lot cheaper? So you choose to put money in those ones that are still a bit beaten up rather than index funds. And then you continue doing that until we're like years down the line.
1: Yeah, I don't think you know what my next point is going to be. However, what you just said leads very, very nicely into it.
0: Oh, does it? Does it actually? Yep. Well, I promise you we didn't plan for this.
1: Well, I guess we should get onto that in one minute.
0: We often get asked what platform we use for our stocks and shares ISIS, and you guessed it, it's Trading212. The next 45 seconds are kindly sponsored by Trading212, but we have used Trading212 long before we had a partnership with them. Now we're going to be honest with you, when we started investing we didn't have the confidence or the means to invest large sums of money. We started investing with 50 pounds each. So we needed a platform that allowed us to invest little money and that had minimal costs because we were investing 50 pounds at a time and high fees would have significantly reduced our returns.
1: This is why we chose Trading212 and three and a half years on, we still have our stocks and shares ISAs with them. Because apart from their low fees, the app is really easy to use and they offer a great range of investments. If you sign up to Trading212 using the referral link in the description and deposit at least the minimum amount required for Invest or ISA accounts, which at the time of recording is £1, you can get a mystery free share worth up to £100. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so what was it that you were just saying to me?
0: Well, aren't you always going to be tempted to put money into a company whose share price looks relatively cheap?
1: Well, with that, I'm going to move on to mistake number three. And this is quite possibly the mistake that has cost me the most money over the past few years. Mistake number three is doubling down on a bad company. So what exactly do I mean by that? Well, when I say doubling down, I mean that I've invested some money into a company, then their stock price has fallen by maybe 10, 20, 30 or 50% and I've thought to myself, well it seems a lot cheaper now so I should buy some more shares. And I was particularly careful about how I phrased this mistake. Originally I planned to say that this mistake was doubling down on a bad investment, but I decided that there is a difference. A bad investment could be perceived as an investment that has lost you money, however I said that my mistake was doubling down on a bad company. This is very different. The stock market is unpredictable and the share prices of individual companies can fluctuate quite a lot on a daily, weekly, monthly, or even yearly basis, especially when you invest in growth-focused stocks like I do. When that happens, it's very easy to invest in a company and then see shares drop 20% just due to the nature of the stock market, you might classify that as a bad investment in the short term, but it's simply the price that investors have to pay if they want to benefit from the long-term potential of growth stocks. All of the best growth stocks have seen their share price fall by at least 50% at some point on their journey. So seeing a share price fall in the short term doesn't necessarily make something a bad investment. So on to my mistake of doubling down on a bad company. This was a mistake because there are plenty of businesses that I had invested in where the company then showed signs of a struggle, there were red flags, and there was a reason why shares were falling 20, 30, 50%. Yet, I ignored these red flags and decided to buy more shares of these companies at a lower price, which clearly, in hindsight, was a big mistake. Now, I have plenty of embarrassing examples when it comes to making this mistake, because this is not a mistake that I've only made once. I have made it time and time again.
0: Just to make sure, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But there is one example that I have picked to share quickly, and that is a company called Teladoc, which Andrea is currently sitting across from me with a grimace on her face because she knows the pain of investing in this company as well.
0: You don't own this company still, do you?
1: Hey, no spoiler alerts for the story.
0: I think I still do. I'm not sure, actually. It's in my pie of investments that I don't look at, <laughs> I think, if it is.
1: Well, let me tell you a little story about TeleDoc. This company was a leader in telehealth, which is basically healthcare that doesn't need to be done in person because it can be done over the phone or using a tablet or using a computer. It was a big beneficiary of the pandemic, as it helped to facilitate virtual doctor's appointments. My thesis was that Teladoc could help open up the world of affordable healthcare to far more people, especially in the States. I gradually bought more and more shares throughout 2020 and 2021, eventually having £1,000 invested in the company. At this point, shares of Teladoc were at $294. Unfortunately, the company ran into trouble. Its growth slowed down, it made a huge acquisition of Livongo that it was struggling to create value from, it was losing a lot of money, and management seemed pretty clueless. As a result, shares were cut in half, falling to $140. At which point, I decided to invest another £300 into the company despite seeing so many red flags. Now, at the time of recording, Teledog's shares are currently trading at just under $19. That is one nine. Shares have fallen by an astounding 94% since their all-time high of $294, wiping out my original investment in the company. But guess what? That £300 that I had invested after shares were cut in half, essentially buying the dip on a bad company, That £300 would now be worth just under 40 quid. I eventually sold my Teladoc shares in 2022, losing almost £1,000, but learning a lesson that would save me a lot more money in the future.
0: God, yeah, that was painful.
1: It's hard as well. It's hard to know when shares are falling for a good reason or if the issue is only temporary or if it's something that's going to really hurt the company. So for example, one of my current investments called Adyen recently put out a report which wasn't that bad, but it shows signs of slowing growth. This is a management team that I like a lot that I trust. The management team reiterated their long term growth targets, said that everything's going to be fine and shares have probably fallen by about 50 or 60%. And that is a company that I have been buying the dip on. But whether or not this will end up being another story that I will tell you in one year's time about how I got it wrong, who knows? That is the nature of investing. There are risks, but it's about understanding what the red flags are and not simply going ahead and buying shares of a company because they've been cut in half. You have to try and understand why. So there are a lot of lessons that can be learned here. The main takeaway for me is that I now focus on the company rather than the stock. Share prices don't necessarily fall for no reason, but it's all about whether or not a company is facing a long-term problem or if it's just a short-term blip that the market is overreacting to. But for now, the most important thing for me is not to simply buy the dip when shares have fallen due to serious red flags. I spoke about DigitalOcean in the first episode of this season. The company's shares crashed after its latest results due to a number of red flags, and old Jamie probably would have been tempted to buy some more shares. However, after learning all the lessons I've learned, I actually decided to sell a good amount of my shares after those results even though shares fell by over 20% on the day. Because there were a lot of red flags that the company was showing. Turns out that was a good idea, since shares of DigitalOcean have actually fallen by over 30% since that initial drop in August. So apparently it pays attention to avoid red flags. Who would have thought? Not you. (laughs) Well, I'm learning. So to recap this point and the lesson, I am perfectly happy to buy shares of great companies at lower prices if I think the market has got something wrong or is missing the big picture. However, I've learned not to try and simply buy the dip on companies where there are real red flags, since that has always been a surefire way for me to lose money.
0: Although, now that I'm thinking, should we do an episode on red flags to look out for in an investment? Would that be useful?
1: I think that could be a good idea.
0: Okay, well, I'll try to put a question on Spotify, so let us know if you would find that useful. And if yes, uh, we'll look into making an episode about that.
1: I'm sure I can pick up plenty of red flags from my investments over the years.
0: Well, let's now move on to mistake number four, which was a big one for me when I started investing. This mistake was thinking that more risk equals higher returns. A lot of us have probably heard the phrase high risk, high reward, which basically means the more risk you take, the higher your potential return. And I mean, who doesn't want to have a higher investing return? The main reason that a lot of us invest is to grow our wealth. So it makes sense to try and get as high a reward as possible for this. However, there's one half of that phrase that often gets forgotten. High risk.
1: I mean, I understand it. I'd like to just think about high reward and ignore the rest of it.
0: Well, even though I believed that by investing in riskier investments, such as high growth individual stocks, I would get a higher return, for some reason, I overlooked the fact that this was high risk, which means that I had a much greater chance of losing a big chunk of my investment. And if £1,000 falls and becomes £100, it becomes very difficult to turn that into high reward. So I found this to be a very unsustainable way to invest over the long term. And there is evidence to suggest that lower risk investments in the stock market can still deliver great returns. In my research, I stumbled upon an article about a book called High Returns from Low Risk, A Remarkable Investment Paradox. In this book, the author ran a study to try and figure out whether or not higher risk on average equals higher return. This is the theory behind high-risk investments. There is a greater chance of losing money, but also a greater chance of making higher returns, such that the average high-risk investor would see better returns than the average low-risk investor. So the author of this book put this theory to the test. They took a large database of 1,000 stocks from the United States and sorted them into 10 groups, called portfolios, based on their level of risk. Portfolio 1 was the low-risk portfolio and included the 100 stocks in the database that were the least volatile, which basically means their share prices were the least prone to wild swings upwards and downwards. On the other end of the spectrum, Portfolio 10 was the high-risk portfolio and contained the 100 most risky and volatile stocks at that time. They tracked these theoretical portfolios from 1929 through to 2015, and they updated them every few months to ensure that Portfolio 1 contained only the lowest-risk stocks and Portfolio 10 contained only the highest-risk stocks. Now, the natural assumption here would be that the high-risk portfolio outperformed the low-risk portfolio, because it's been left to run for almost 100 years and there are a lot of different stocks, so the averages should work out in the favor of the high-risk investment. However, that's not what the study found. The low-risk portfolio delivered better returns than the high-risk portfolio by some margin. The low-risk portfolio delivered annual returns of 10.2% per year, whereas the high-risk portfolio only generated a return of 6.4%, which is way lower. For perspective, if someone had put $1,000 into each portfolio back in 1929, the high-risk portfolio would have turned that into $210,000, which is pretty good. But the low-risk portfolio would have turned it into just under $4 million, which is huge.
1: And $1,000 put into Teladoc in 2021 would now be worth $60.
0: Well, that is some context for you right there. But you know, this is part of the reason why my investing approach has changed over the years. Back in 2020 and 2021, I was happy to invest in high-risk investments like fast-growing stocks, some very speculative companies who were hardly making any sales, and even some of the lesser-known cryptocurrencies. Yep. <laughs> I was one of those people.
1: I I feel like I feel like the people want to know, did you ever own Dogecoin?
0: Th- can I say no?
1: <laughs> you can.
0: Oh, like I owned A very small amount, maybe like a $100 or something like that of Dogecoin for like an hour up until I got too scared and I sold it at a small loss, I think. But yeah, at least crypto has never been a big part of my portfolio. It's always been about like, I don't know, 2% of my portfolio, which is really an amount that I can afford to lose.
1: I've always been relatively anti-crypto. However, one of the greatest things I think I've ever bought is a little replica Dogecoin off of Amazon. So we actually have it in the house. It's just this little golden coin with Doge on it. And uh, it, it's, quite, it's quite fun, but also serves as a little reminder, I guess.
0: Yep. <laughs> well, the result was terrible. <laughs> they were all awful investments, and I learned an expensive lesson. If I want to take high risks in the hope of high rewards, I'll take my money to Vegas and head to a roulette wheel. But investing isn't meant to be like that. Sure, you could go for risky stocks and maybe hit the jackpot, but that's really no different to gambling. You might triple your money, but you could very easily lose everything. That is why nowadays I invest the majority of my money into well-diversified index funds. I do still own individual stocks, but not because their share prices could go to the moon within a month if X, Y, and Z all happen. I own them because I believe them to be brilliant companies who can deliver long-term value to investors. And investing mostly in index funds might be considered boring, but guess what? Boring investing is capable of creating exciting levels of wealth, and that's exactly what I'm aiming to do going forward.
1: Now, making mistakes is all part of learning. However, there is a way to do it that will cost you far less than these mistakes have cost us.
0: We have taken everything we've learned over the past few years and poured it into our A to Z investing course for beginners. The course is a carefully thought out roadmap designed to take you from a beginner to a confident investor in six weeks. Not only will you get access to over 40 lessons and more than 100 videos, but we will be able to support you every step of the way. We'll be active daily in the exclusive Facebook group to answer any questions you have. Plus, we'll have live group check-in calls every three weeks to make sure that you get everything you need from the course. If you find our podcast helpful and you're ready to take the next step on your investing journey, then be sure to take a look at the A to Z investing course using the link in the description once this episode is over. Signups are closing this weekend and will not reopen again this year. We can't wait for you to join us.
1: The fifth and final mistake of this episode is one that I was extremely guilty of in 2021, and that is ignoring valuations. This simply means that I was overpaying for shares of companies by an extreme amount, such that so many things would have to go well for the company if I would have any chance of making a profit. I want to quickly introduce the concept of valuation. We're not going to dive into all the detail because it's a more technical point that probably requires its own podcast episode. But think of stock market valuations like this. Imagine that I've given you some money and sent you off to a car boot sale and said, Find me something that we can sell at an auction and make a profit on. And yes, I am taking inspiration from the TV show Bargain Hunt for this example. So you go off looking at things in a car boot sale and you find a nice looking set of plates that you would like to buy. At this point, a few things are going through your head. How much do you think the plates are worth? How much are you willing to pay for them? And how much do you think you can sell them for at an auction? After a bit of thinking. You believe that these set of plates would probably go for around 20 to 25 quid at auction and you want to be safe and pay no more than 15 pounds for them. If you're right, then you might be able to make a nice profit of around 5 to 10 pounds and go away happy. Valuations in the stock market are kind of similar. You look at what a business is achieving now, you think about what it might be capable of achieving in the future. And you decide on whether or not the potential of the business to generate cash and profits in the future mean that it's worthwhile buying shares at the current share price. So let's look at my attitude in the view of that car boot sale example. Back in 2021, I was rocking up, I was looking at the surf place, and I was saying to myself, well, These look quite nice, and perhaps they're made of the finest china around, or were owned by some famous person, or perhaps someone at the auction will really really like them, and I would pay £100 for the set of plates. As a result, it meant that I would need a lot of things to go right in order to make a profit, and only a small number of things to go wrong in order for me to make a substantial loss. This is exactly what ended up happening to me in 2021. I invested in a number of what I still believe to be brilliant companies, but there was an issue. Fast growing technology stocks, which I happen to like investing in, ended up in a bit of a bubble in 2021. This meant that the share prices of these companies ended up being extremely expensive, and it meant that the companies would have to deliver extremely strong growth and results in order to justify these prices. Sadly, this didn't happen for most of them, and as a result, the share price of a lot of these brilliant companies ended up crashing in 2022. Now, this isn't to say that you should be obsessed with valuation. When you're investing in innovative, fast-growing companies, it can be very tough to figure out exactly what is the appropriate amount to pay for them. I have my own method now for assessing valuation, which basically involves using analyst predictions to figure out how much cash or profit a company could be making in five years time and whether or not today's price looks reasonable given that assumption. But valuation still remains the last thing I look at when assessing a potential investment. I will always be looking to ensure that a company has a lot of the traits I look for in high quality fast growing businesses, such as having strong, durable, competitive advantages, having a great management team with skin in the game, which is a way of saying management who also own a substantial amount of shares in the company, and companies with a positive outlook for future growth. Only after assessing all of these things and more will I look at valuation. If I think the valuation is cheap I'll buy shares. If I think it's reasonable and it's a high quality business, I'll probably buy shares. If I think the valuation is high, then the decision becomes tougher. But if the valuation appears insane, like it did for many of these companies back in 2021, then I can save myself from substantial losses and additional risk by not buying the shares. It's a tough thing to manage, and I'm sure I'll keep learning more and more about a valuation approach that works for me as the years go by. But one thing is for certain back in 2021, I paid way too much for shares of companies, and my portfolio got cut in half because of it. So I'm now a bit more cautious when it comes to valuation.
0: Well, I guess that's our dirty laundry aired. You have just got to listen to five of the worst mistakes we made when we started investing. To recap, They were,
1: one, not having an emergency fund before investing,
0: two, not starting with index funds,
1: three, doubling down on bad companies,
0: four, thinking that more risk always equals higher returns,
1: and five, ignoring valuations.
0: We hope that you can learn something from today's podcast without having to pay the price that we paid. And don't forget, if you want to learn more from us about the world of investing with a step by step roadmap to take you from beginner to confident investor, then be sure to check out the link in this podcast's description for our A to Z investing course, since this is the last time you'll be able to sign up in 2023.
1: We really hope you found this episode helpful. If you did, take a screenshot of the podcast and share it to your Instagram story and tag us at stocks and savings so that we can see it. And please also give this episode a five star rating on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Since we're a smaller podcast, these two things would really help us to reach more people, gain credibility, and hopefully dedicate even more resources to bringing you a podcast that will help you to build wealth through investing while enjoying life.
0: Thanks again to our season sponsor, Trading2on2, and remember to check out the referral link in the description and get your mystery free share worth up to £100. Keep in mind that terms and conditions apply to the offer.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait for you to join us again next week.
0: Until next time, bye bye!